0: When I was trying to get on the fire department, uh, and and my father said, "Oh, you're a smart guy. You know, why do you You know, you can do better than than a firefighter." And he didn't say it in a derogatory way. It means he just said, "You know, why do you want to be crawling down halls and getting dirty and out at night in the snow and the sleet and the heat and so forth?" And I said, "Well, that's what I want to do." And and my father said it to me, and I say it to myself all the time. My father told me, "said it's Your life, you do with it what you want." And he said, I don't care if you want to be a criminal. He said, but if you decide to be a criminal, he said, I'd really be proud to go in the post office and see uh, your picture on the 10 most wanted <laughs> list.
1: You know? Keeping promises to better humanity as a part of your job. That is a, that that's an interesting concept. Uh, and I'm not talking about part of your job as in sort of this commercial way of, you know, promise to sell widgets. You know, we're a non-commercial nonprofit, but I, I'm talking about a promise to save someone's life. Bob, uh, the gentleman in today's episode, is someone who runs towards the fire, not from it, and he just happened to be there to respond to a tragic moment that a generation of Americans will remember. Hi, this is Alex Sheen, founder of Because I Said I Would, and you are listening to the Because I Said I Would podcast, where we share the life stories that come with the promises that people make, the ones they keep, and even the ones that are broken. In today's episode, you're gonna meet Bob, a retired firefighter from a, a small suburb outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Bob has a great sense of humor and like this crazy Boston accent, like a, like a pak car in the Harvard Yard kind of thing going on. Uh, But with that, also a heart of gold, Bob's heroics, uh, I'm talking life-saving rescue efforts. They go far beyond the call of duty. This is his promised story.
0: My mother's side of the family uh, were firefighters in the city of Revere two of two of her uncles were uh lieutenants a couple cousins were on the job so and and like any boy you know it's i was always drawn by the 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 big trucks and the you know you hang out by the fire station you see the guys hanging around and then all of a sudden a bell would ring and everybody's running and stuff was happening and they didn't know where they were going and in and, in and, 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 They'd come back and they'd be, you know, some. It, it just seemed like a fun job, and I didn't fully understand the, 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 all of it, but I was really intrigued by it. So we came from a family that that, that uh, kind of dedicated our lives to public service and and, and serving others, uh, which which I think is an honorable uh, profession.
1: Most of us can kind of imagine what it might be like to work at a fire station. We have ideas from movies, TV shows like Chicago Fire or whatever, right? Looks like a kind of a rowdy time, pranks, bunch of guys living together, 24-hour shifts, some kind of frat house weirdness. But how Bob describes his time as a fireman for the 30-plus years he served, a little bit different. Uh, really, it comes down, I guess, to him. It's uh, It's his family.
0: That was that's the nature of the fire department. Is you know it, it was it's a big club. It was a big boys club, and now it's a now it's a boys and girls club. Uh, as as females are getting involved in it, so camaraderie was big. Loyalty uh, was used. The the the, the so called brotherhood and now the sisterhood of the to the job. It was very close cohesive group and, and it wasn't uh, I, it wasn't that everything was always everyone always got along it was like a it was a family thing and, and like it and like any family you know you have your good times you have your bad times you have times when everyone's getting along with each other you have times when they're like cats and dogs with each other but when the bell rang and in and, and, and duty called
1: it was all hands on deck for the club first purpose and that common purpose was to combine courage with skill to save the lives of others. Now, retired from his position at the station, looking back, Bob couldn't have been happier with his time on the job. You know, we got to we grew up together as you know, coming on as young guys in
0: our twenties and, and retiring in our fifties and sixties. And, and we saw we went from single people to married people to having our first children together. I loved that job. In fact, I, I was crying the day that I left it. You know, and I only left because you know there were younger. I had my time, and I could have left actually three years prior. And um, and there were, there were guys on the promotional list. So if I got out of the way, then a lieutenant would get promoted to captain, a fire guy would get promoted to lieutenant. They were good guys, and they certainly deserved the position of leadership.
1: It, it was really it was it was a it was a unique thing, and I was blessed to have that as a profession. Bob's work life was not the only rewarding aspect of his life, of course. He had his wife and his son, Bob the uh, Third. no one called him Bob the Third because that's super awkward. They called him Bobby, uh, or Bobby, if you were from Ohio like me. But anyways, they pronounce it differently. And and Bob himself, uh, he's known to be somewhat of a character.
0: Well, I will tell you that we have we have one child. My wife will tell you that she has two. You know <laughs> so so there's a fine line uh, I, I have trouble discerning uh, when I'm a father and when I'm when, when I'm his friends.
1: So when his son Bobby made the decision to run the Boston Marathon, Bob was overjoyed and nothing but supportive, which is really important. Uh, for those who have perhaps run a marathon, it is not an easy thing overall, but to run your first is an entirely different type of challenge. And then to make your first, the Boston Marathon, it just requires a whole nother level of preparation. So on the morning of April 15th, 2013, a proud father dropped off his well-prepared son in Boston, downtown, and they geared up for the 117th annual Boston Marathon.
0: So, so I, I drove probably, uh just Bobby and i went into boston uh, his mother was actually at home getting ready and his grandmother lived in another town so they, they were kind of coordinating things on the home front Bobby and i just rode into to boston ourselves and the city was actually kind of quiet before the race uh you know once the race started it was going to be this huge you know uh Gathering of people and so forth, but it, the city was—it was almost like a little Sunday morning. So we drove in. We had a chance to kind of reflect. I was told how proud I was, and what a great accomplishment it was. And and you know, he was saying how he didn't think he was going to be able to raise that money. And it was, it was you know, I said, well, you know, today this is this is the culmination of it all. And you know, so really just enjoy your race today and, and think about all the good things that you've done and all the people who will benefit not only by what you the money you've raised, but You know, everybody everybody here is running for for a reason. And and it's all good reasons, you know. Uh, whether they overcame addiction, whether they're trying to they overcame cancer, whether they're trying to repay people that helped them every person here is running, you know, for, for for causes greater than themselves. So really, really just enjoy it. So I dropped them off. I gave a kiss goodbye and a hug and good luck and and he went his way, and I went my way, and then went home, and I got his brother and you know, everyone that was going to be the cheering section for him. And, and uh, we drove back into Boston.
1: Now, a lot of people are obviously familiar with the Boston Marathon. But for those who may not be and may not know the significance of this event, the Boston Marathon is actually the world's oldest annual marathon and is one of six world marathon majors. It attracts around 500,000 spectators, like live I'm there kind of thing spectators from around the world. and averages nearly 30,000 registered participants. In 2018, they benefited over 260 nonprofit organizations and raised over $36.6 million for these charities. The race is actually held on what's called Patriot's Day, which isn't a holiday across the country, but certainly is in Boston. People actually have this day off and the city is literally blooming and blaring with excitement for this historic race. Oh, there were thousands of
0: people. There were the The Street's were Line. And this is a huge event for the city of Boston. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the largest ground dogs in, in the country and it's an old marathon, and it's, it's Patriots Day, it's on a Monday, and
1: people are out of
0: work. And...
1: With people flocking to the streets, getting ready to watch their loved ones, their friends, families, fellow Patriots hit this windy 26-mile stretch of roads, Bob and his family find their places.
0: I was in one of the back roads of the Bleaches uh, uh, just prior to the finish line. Uh, I would say by myself, and Bobby's mother and his girlfriend, and you know, grandmother and aunt, and every they were actually on the other side of the finish line. So, and the plan was, was. I would give the heads up when I saw Bobby approaching the finish line. So his mother would be able to catch him at the finish line. So, you know, Bobby had a he had a tracker on him. So it, it it said like when he started and when he was crossing certain points and it was connected to your phone so you could kind of see some of his progress. So I was able to track his, his progress and I knew he was like getting close and and uh I was in the bleachers watching and kinda of keeping an eye out and you know, it was just it was, it was actually this big joyful day. Everyone was it was you know, the crowds were screaming and people were going and you know, never ever ever would you expect, you know, any any such thing to have occurred.
1: The time is two forty nine PM. Bob and his family anxiously waiting. Cell phone cameras in hand to see their son cross the finish line. I
0: actually held my camera up. I said, you know, he's doing, he's got to be in here any second now. So I, I held my camera, like, cell phone up and I was actually videotaping it. So 15 seconds into the thing, the first bomb went off.
1: Bob was sitting in the stands in the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. Hey, Carlos, Carlos I'm but, but, so sorry. But, we have some breaking news. Apparently there's been an explosion at the Boston Marathon. Uh, people are hurt. They've stopped the Boston Marathon. Spectators and runners were impacted at the blast, but of course the details are still unfolding as we speak. There's blood in the streets. Everything is sort of speculation at this point. A right. As he sat in the bleachers, that, uh, his perspective was that not only of a father, but also of a firefighter, someone with 35 plus years of experience. As a first responder, he knew exactly what this was at a level of detail that most uh, wouldn't think about.
0: There's a certain
1: template, I guess, that, that, that that's followed by
0: terrorists. And it typically, you know, they'd be, you know, they want to take out as many people, they want to create as big a scene as they can. So they'll, they'll detonate this device. And they know that first responders are going to come into this area. And it's going to raise havoc. So first thing is they're going to detonate the device. People are going to, they're going to cause destruction. People are going to try to flee. So there's going to be this mass exodus. There may be, a, you know, actually a stampede of, of people. And then that makes it difficult for first responders to get in because everyone's trying to get out. And then once the first responders are in there, then they'll detonate a second device and take out the first responders. So they caused the most destruction and take out the rescuers at the same time. So as soon as that went off, I knew exactly what it was. I had a clear view of of, of the, the blast site. I heard the, the explosion. I could see the explosion. I could see the people falling. So I knew exactly what it was. And my first thing was, you know, my son is is I know he's he he wasn't injured in this in this first blast but he's running, in, he's running into it, you know, and I have no way of stopping that. So it was this loss of control. As much as we think we have control of our lives, we really have no control, you know? Things happen and we react to it. So the first device went off and I knew my son was safe, but I had no way of warning him.
1: It is only natural, almost literally biological, for one to think about their own offspring, their own son. I mean, how could that not be your reaction And how could it not be that panic overtakes you? Well, there's kind of only a few ways that happens. Maybe you're born a different way or maybe you're a firefighter. And Bob really just couldn't stick with that biology though. He had to move and move quickly. He felt that it wasn't a tragedy but a job to do in some way. And as he had those thoughts, the city just broke out in a complete mass chaos around him while people's lives were at stake.
0: As soon as as the bomb went off, it was instant chaos. People people were screaming, people were starting to flee. Like everything just stopped. It was like the world stopped and chaos erupted. And as a first responder, I know one of the things the first responders do is, is look for the secondary device. So what do you see around you that's unusual? And one of the things that's gonna be unusual is anyone running towards the blast site or anyone not leaving the blast site. So if you see someone hanging around, you know, then there's, a, there's your suspect for secondary device. So as I, I went down, I'm kind of going against the, the tide there and it's uh, a so going over the barrier that lost a Boston police officer with his gun in my face. Say, you know, but you know, he says, stand back, everybody get back. So, anyone that was going in, he was holding back with his gun because those are potential secondary, you know, terrorists. So, I had no identification on him. I told him, I said, I'm a fire paramedic. I said, You gotta let me in. He said, No, stay back. And I said, People are dying. You gotta let me in. I said, I could help them. And he, and he said, Okay, go ahead. So, and over. And then he had to go over another second secondary wall and, and, and so forth. So my goal in doing that was, you know what, there's nothing I could do about the safety of my son. Uh, and when the second device went off, which was only, you know, 10 seconds later, in all honesty, I said, you know what, first device didn't get him, but that one probably did. And my heart was in my throat. And, and at that point, I really figured, you know what, we're all screwed here. Because I'm trying to listen. Are there any other devices? Because an incident commander, you have to command the incident. If you don't, if you don't manage it, it's it's going to manage you. So as as you do with these, you have to be aware of what else is happening. So I, heard, I saw the first explosion. I heard the second explosion, and i and I'm trying to strategize. Are they circling around us? At least are these devices going to circle around us and encapsulate us, and then and then we're all screwed. Or are they going to go down, continue going down the fini, you know the the root, the race route? And you know are there they ten of these devices they just going to de So you knew it was an electronic, you know detonation that the detonations were somehow controlled or connected. And I was trying to like listen to that.
1: He ran towards the fire, or in this case, the bombing, and he quickly snapped into action. I needed to manage people, that, that's, what a, that's what
0: a fire officer does or a police commander does, or a military commander. You manage people and you get the people to do the work. Uh, not because you don't want to, it's just that that's your role. So most effectively save as many people as I can. I had to make that site a classroom. I had, it had to become an instant classroom. So I, I went into that, that scene with the understanding that I have to run by a lot of people that are gonna be yelling and screaming for health, that are not gonna be severely injured. And I have to find the core of it. This is a a bomb, it's like an onion. And so go to the center, find my dead person, and then my most severely injured, most salvageable person should be right next to that one. So find the dead person and work your way out. And as you get the further away, the injury should become less severe because that's the nature of a bomb. I really wasn't prepared for what I was going to see. In all my years of, you know, 35 years in the fire service, mostly as an officer, I had 35 years as an emergency room nurse at a city emergency room. And I've always told people, you know, you've never seen everything. And don't ever think that you will because once you think you've seen everything, you're going to get surprised. So. I wasn't prepared for what I actually saw, the the catastrophic injuries I saw that the people were still alive. Because in all my other previous experiences, those people would succumbed while we were responding.
1: Despite the horror of what Bob encountered, he made it to the bomb site, the epicenter, the center of the onion, in one minute and 30 seconds. I was
0: actually at the... The the sight of those people within one minute and 30 seconds at one minute and 30 seconds I, I was actually taking care of people there well the first person i saw was 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 the uh crystal uh, who, who was uh, you know a woman in her 30s um uh, who had both legs blown off and her cell phone hadn't even left her hand. uh and the cup that she was drinking was right beside me so and there was another girl on top of her if I'm a dead person. And work your way out. So that that was my my dead person. And then the one, so the girl on top of her was unconscious. And but people, uh, the the thing that stuck the most in my mind is is the people were screaming that they can't believe this is happening. And, and I love you. And I'm gonna die. And I didn't think we were gonna die like this. And the guy, Jeff Bauman, with his you know, both legs blown off, and and, and he's like, legs are gone, and, and he's physically trying to run, get up and run, and it's like this sensory overload. And it's like, I've never seen anything like this. And and, and it was, okay, kick it into gear, and, and now you need to, and, and all, there's really like no trained people there. All, all the people that were around there were victims of the blast themselves, you know? Uh, because if you're there in a minute and 30, and believe me, help got there very quickly.
1: Bob went from one injured person to the next, helping with wounds, guiding other victims who were conscious and able to do the same. So, my role is,
0: and if I were to get, get involved too much as far as taking care of any one person, then you sacrifice others. So, you know. And I secured his bleeding as best as possible. and, and even doing that, I'm there, you know, I, I, I can't get tied up here. So it always get people to do the work. Tell them people here, come over here, put pressure on this and, and hold it and then say, I need gloves. I'm there, no, you don't need gloves. Just put your hand here and hold it here until help comes, and then go on to the next one and, and, and tell them what to do and say, do this until help comes. Do this until help comes. And also, so you could secure, so you were in effect treat as many people as you can by using people that really knew nothing. But all you had to do was just, they were willing to do it. Uh, and, and you just needed to give them the, the word of encouragement was, you know, no, you don't need to do this, just do this until help comes. And and they did it. Every, all those people were saved by by the victims themselves in, in, the, in the initial, First couple of minutes, and and they did it, and they did it without without question, and and those were the people that saved. No one person saved anyone that day. Everyone saved everyone, and everyone just did their little part. And I didn't do any anything that was any. I, I don't think any greater than than anybody else. You know, if the people said no, I'm
1: not going to do it, then guess what? That that person would have died. So what Bob had to do was just give a little direction, a little nudge to fight against this reaction that we have in a moment like this, this feeling where we say inside, I don't know how to do this. And that's understandable. But at some point in these types of moments, it's just kind of this thing where it's like, well, too bad. Action is needed right now. And we have to have this mentality that if I don't do something, no one else will. Because in the fact of this moment, no one else could. These innocent bystanders, they were just caught up in this moment that no one should have been in in the first place. But they rose to the occasion, with that little nudge from Bob. But
0: people rose to the occasion, and I'm a true believer that that people are good and that they will rise to the occasion if given a little direction and given a little encouragement you know, and and, and uh, but everyone was off those streets in, in, in 18 minutes, you know. The, the bombing happened at shift change for a hospital, so there was double staffing on. People, there was doctors that were running the race, there were people that worked in the hospitals that were spectators in the race, they all showed up to work. It really was the goodness of, of, of people that saved other people that day.
1: After the dust settled on Copley Square that fateful afternoon, the two explosions, which were homemade pressure cooker bombs, killed three civilians and injured an estimated 264 other people. They were treated at 27 local hospitals. At least 14 people required amputations as a direct result of the blasts. The bombs were set off by two self-radicalized brothers motivated by extremist beliefs. One was gunned down three days later, and the other was captured after an unprecedented manhunt that involved thousands of law enforcement officers searching a 20-block area of Watertown, Massachusetts.
0: Today we are enlisting the public's help to identify the two
1: suspects. Dramatic developments overnight. The man in the black baseball cap is dead. His brother is still at large. The city of Boston is in lockdown at noontime today as the manhunt for a second suspect in the Boston Marathon bombings continues. On April 8, 2015, that man was convicted of 30 charges and two months later, he was sentenced to death. I asked Bob what his thoughts were on these two brothers, these two terrorists, who planned to kill as many people as they could within their power, including potentially his son. Well,
0: I I really haven't given the the terrorists really any thought at all. Uh, You know, I mean, terrorism, I guess, is gonna happen. It's a way of life. But all I saw was the goodness of people. And that's what I try to focus on. I think more people are good than we give credit for. Given the opportunity, people will rise to the occasion. And unfortunately, my father always said that, even as a school principal, that I, I remember him at science fairs and so forth. And he says, You know, where are all the newspapers? Where are the TV cameras today when kids are, you know, presenting this stuff at a science fair? If there was a, something bad happening, there'd be television trucks out in the school lot. But when, when good things happen, oftentimes you don't see the coverage. And, and when bad things happen, it it, it gets more coverage than it deserves. So I think we're smart in not giving these terrorists the coverage that they that they seek, uh, because that, I think that's their message is you know we're, we're going to terrorize you, we're going to scare you so that you retract back into your little cocoon and and, and and we take your life away that
1: way. After witnessing the horrors of that day firsthand, and still have the heart. To only look at the good in humans, well, that makes Bob a role model for us all. If we all thought and acted like this, like he did, the world would of course be a better place. But I'm not just talking about Bob. It's all those rescue workers, medical personnel, police, fire, all those folks who were dispatched from surrounding cities that day, and even private ambulances from all over the state. They too are a shining example of what I hope it means to be an American.
0: That, you know, and, and I really respect, the, you know, the, the police officers, the bomb squads, that you know, that, that stand up to these guys and, and that we, we react and, you know, it's, it's a security blanket that I think that we all kind of take for granted. Uh, we don't realize the people that are out there risking their lives every day and they train every day. And and our expectation is no matter what happens, it's bad. We're going to pick up their phone, call 911. And... The cavalry will come and they will save us. It's the it's the greatest profession uh, and the greatest you know, group of people. They're, sure, there are bad people. There there are people that don't deserve to have the job. There are people that disgrace the job. You know, but by by message to my guys, what I was working with, 911 is is our opportunity to do good we're invited into a person's life in their worst day when they dial 911 that's not really you call for help but it's the invitation into their home and into their life and we're invited into that because of the trust that was developed by our predecessors the guys that worked before us the police officers the firefighters the you know the soldiers the you know whatever it was whatever profession it is that they're for help they established trust and, and our, our job is to uphold that trust and to do the very best we can as far as helping them. And I was blessed. I, I, I really was blessed to, to work with those guys. And, and I'm honored to have been part of that, that whole profession. And at 911, and you call it, we don't care who you are, what you are, whether you're a good person or bad person. If you need help, we're, we're there. And there's no questions asked. There's no appointment necessary. There's no, there's no, we're not doing it for profit. We're not doing it for money. We're not doing it for, for what we're going to get out of it. We're doing it because it needs to be done.
1: So what happened to Bobby? Let's talk about that. At around 11 o'clock that morning, Bobby did start running the Boston Marathon. And for anyone who's run the Boston Marathon, you might know of a unique phrase. It's called right on Hereford, left on Boylston. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing those correctly, but it's the name of two streets. Because at the very end of this race, there's these two quick turns that you have to make before you get to that finish line. And after hours of running... Bobby could see Hereford Street. That's when he heard that crashing sound, a sound that was very different than what his father heard. Because to Bobby, I mean, even though he was only 0.6 miles away from that blast, it just sounded like city noise. But police officers, they stopped and impeded the race. I mean, some runners just kept going, ran right past them because it was just too awkward of a moment. They didn't understand why someone would stop the Boston Marathon, but Bobby, With his respect for law enforcement, he stopped. He tried to call his parents, call his mom. Busy signals, one after the other. Eventually, he thought of the idea of texting them. And so he wrote to his mom, who almost immediately responded, but because he was using a stranger's phone, she said, who is this? He responded, this is This is Bobby. I'm I'm texting from a borrowed phone. I'm okay. Where are you? They would meet in Fenway Park. He embraced his mom, his grandmother, his aunt, his cousin, so relieved to, to see them, but his dad wasn't there. In Bob's effort to help all of these people, he just continued working and wouldn't see his son until much later on, but they would be reunited. As time went on, Bobby would constantly be asked, Well, you're going to run the race again. He did start to develop this fear, this phobia that, Well, if it happened once, could it not happen again? So one day, as he's just flipping through his phone, he trips over a TED talk uh, with the name Because I Said I Would. He watches it. He's reminded of the impact of all of the funding that he has raised for children in the hospital. He remembers that the promise was to finish the race. And so in 2014, he signs up again. With a black Sharpie, he writes the words because I said I would on his shoes, and he finishes the race as he said he would. Promise cards mean something not only to Bobby, but to his dad as well.
0: I carry carry promise cards with me all the time. I, I have like a little, you know, business card holder. When I work in the emergency room, I have that, with people. When Bobby works as a paramedic, he has it with him. To me, it's like a prescription pad. I, I, I precept a lot of new nurses and so forth. And I said, don't for one second think that the answer to all these people's problems is in the medication machine. You know, I said, oh, the, the, the answer to what's wrong with them is going to be fine by checking a bunch of boxes in the computer. And then when you get to the bottom, I'll tell you what, what's wrong, I want to do. I said, These are people with real life problems that, that are struggling, and everybody's struggling. And I've, I've used it for alcohol. Bobby's used it with heroin uh, addicts. He's, he's, he's treated heroin addicts. He talks over the illness. Two days later, he drops a card back at the house with a little note. You know, and, and I tell people, you know what? You're living your life the, the best that you can. And I'm with my life. And it's not my place to tell you how to live your life. I just, I'd just i be remiss if I didn't tell you this. And I'll introduce the promise. I said, the true measure of who we are as a person is who we are, what, what we're by ourselves, and how we act. And I said, I have to believe that you don't want to be living a life like this. You know, there's programs that are out there. I said, but the, at the end of the day, you're the person that has to do the work. So I'll introduce the card, and I said, this card is just a tool. And I tell them, I said, if you want to throw it away, throw it away. I said, write down whatever you want. But I have had more people come back, you know. And sometimes you hear from the people, sometimes you don't. But I've had several people come back to the ER months, and sometimes even years later, and they'll come in looking for you say, you know what, you gave me this card. And I want to let you know that it really it changed my life. I've given cards away, I've never heard anything, as, as I'm sure you have. 10.3 million. Right. But those cards have helped more people than any medicine I've ever
1: administered. In all the years of selfless service to others, through the use of promise cards, this just a little one cent piece of paper, Bob offers his patients the opportunity to be their own heroes. I, I
0: truly believe you don't need to wear a uniform to serve others. And, and I'm a big believer in, in the ripple effect. We have no idea how our lives affect others, and how our little actions affect others. And, and you in particular, uh, and the movement because I said I would, you know, but you only hear a very, very small fraction of the stories. You will never, ever fully realize the impact of, of what you said, or what you did, or how you, how you shaped and changed the lives of others.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our podcast series. This is Alex Sheen, founder of Because I Said I Would. This story, Bob O'Donnell, it makes me think of sacrifice, or at least the potential for it. And that means a lot to Because I Said I Would as a nonprofit, as a social movement. It is in our code of honor. Our definition of sacrifice is the following. It is an unfortunate reality that the betterment of humanity requires sacrifice, voluntarily giving away what we cherish, even if for a greater cause, is difficult. I accept that life is not easy, decisions must be made, and so sacrifices as well. In an age where everything is becoming more and more convenient, there's a button to click, it can happen in five minutes, there's a shortcut, a way around it, technology is just making life easier and at the same time is perhaps unknowingly teaching the next generation and this one, that sacrifice shouldn't be a part of life. Everything should be convenient, right? A thousand options, on demand. And it's just not that way. We can continue to buy into this thought, but that will be at the cost of the betterment of humanity. Bob Senior recognizes that. And that was passed on to his son, Bobby, who works as an EMT and a character quality like sacrifice, it doesn't pass on by accident. We have to remember that we're all role models, that the kids around us, they're watching. And usually at the end of an episode, I have a call to action. I mention a statistic, cite another nonprofit to visit, but I'm gonna be a little selfish here for a moment and ask you to visit because I said I would.com. When we talk about being a person of your word, being a person of honor, Being a person who is willing to sacrifice for those in need, because I said I would, is trying to teach the next generation how to do that through character education. The opportunity for children to learn concepts like honesty, self-control, accountability, sacrifice in the classroom. We have resources that are freely available for teachers, youth development leaders, maybe a parent like you. And after looking through all of our lesson plans and and videos, resources, if that's not enough, I encourage you to check out character.org. Uh, another incredible nonprofit that's working in this field of character education as well. I encourage you to download the 11 principles of character that they have and look at this at multiple angles. Bob O'Donnell is character education walking down the street. I mean, he is a real life example that we can learn from, that we need to see more of, but that is not going to happen on accident. So advocate for character education today. That's our episode for today. If you like this story, this podcast, remember that you can follow us on Facebook at Because I Said I Would, Instagram at Because I Said I Would, or Twitter at BC I Said I Would. See more stories in a written format, pictures of promise cards, quotes, tips on how to get better with your promises. We want to, to be that hopefully daily encouragement uh, in one way or another. This story is actually featured in the Because I Said I Would book that came out in January of 2019. I encourage you to pick up a copy if you want to support the charity, because 100% of my proceeds is the author. Everything that would come to me goes to the charity to fund our programs in schools, in prisons, our volunteer projects. I won't keep going on about it, but if you want to read this and see pictures of these gentlemen, uh, check out the book on Amazon.com or Because I Said I wouldcom slash the book. And we're actually trying to get this podcast to be a resource for those character education opportunities as well. So if you wanna listen to the entire series and not just this episode, go to because I said I would.com slash the podcast. You can listen and subscribe also on Apple podcasts and most other platforms where podcasts are found. And while you're there, if you don't mind, you know, give us a rating, tell us how we're doing, give us a review, it goes a long way. A special thanks to our producer, Julie Fink. And our audio engineer, Dave Douglas, uh, and I'm your host, Alex Sheen. Until next time, uh, please remember, a single promise can change a life forever. And behind every promise, there's a story.